0: Um, well, hey, good morning. My name Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad you're with us. I'm really thankful to be with you, and excited now to look at God's word together. And uh, if you're if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a sermon series uh, that we've titled "Delighting in Our Dependence: The Gift of Being Human." And uh, what we're doing is we're using um, Dr. Kelly Capick's book, recent book called "Your Only Human." Um, that we've actually got um, some finally back on the book table. I had 10 copies before the first service. Now there's only two left. So maybe act like you're going to the bathroom and go get one if you really want one. Um, but we can, we'll can we refill it. You don't have to do that. Um, but we're using this book as a guide to help us think about the good limits we have as the, the creatures we are and what it looks like for us to embrace these limits and live in light of them. And today what we're going to talk about is we're going to consider how Understanding and embrace our limits relates to our identity. So how understanding and embracing our limits impacts the way you and I see ourselves and our purpose in the world. And to help us think about this, we're going to look at this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And so I'm going to read that for us and then pray before we, we jump in and look at it. And so, if you want to follow along, you can see it printed in your bulletin. We'll have it also up here on the screen. So, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, this is, this is God's word to us this morning. The Apostle Paul writes From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray, to, pray together. Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, calling us, gathering us here. Um, Lord, it's it's striking to think about the fact that um, coming here is not what any of us would naturally want to do. Uh, your word says clearly that on our own we actually run away from you. Uh, we don't pursue you unless you first pursue us. So thank you for doing that, uh, for bringing us here, however we're showing up and, and coming in this morning. And thank you that you want to uh, increase our joy, even as we talked about lighting the Advent candle. And you want to give us a joy that's not based on our circumstances, but that's based on who we are in our relationship with you and what that means for us. And so I pray that now you'd use this time to that end, that you'd open our eyes and hearts and minds as we look at this passage, show us what you want us to see and hear and believe um, as we're looking at it in light of, of this series we're doing today. So I ask that you'd be with us. Give us your spirit now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On well, season one of the hit Apple TV show, Ted Lasso, I'm sure many of you guys have seen, but the story about the American football turned English premier soccer league coach named Ted Lasso. One of the storylines in this first season is about Roy Kent and him aging and kind of coming to the, the end of his career. And in the world of Ted Lasso, Roy Kent has been a legendary player for many years. He's known for his tenacity and toughness. But now that he's getting close to the finish line, Um, Some of these, he just doesn't have it like he used to, right? He's lost some of his physical abilities. Um, He's lost some of the angry competitive spirit that made him who he once was. And, And as these things become undeniable realities for him, like professional athletes tend to do, he starts to wrestle with what this means for him and his identity going forward. And so seeing all this, his new girlfriend, Keely, she wants to help him. And so there's this, this great scene where what she does is she tells him to sit down, and she brings in his niece, Phoebe, who he loves deeply, and he tells her to close her eyes and describe her Uncle Roy. And this is what, this is what she says. She says, well, he's my uncle. His beard is scratchy. He buys me ice cream. He swears a lot. He's really funny, and I love him. And as she says these things about him, you can tell Roy is moved. You can you can see it on his face. But you can also see that he's resistant to it. And his, his resistance is then confirmed when Keeley turns to him and says, Look, see, she didn't say anything about you being a football player, because what he says is in, in much more colorful language is he quickly responds and says, Who cares? She's six. And when you watch it, the, the scene makes you laugh because it's Roy and he's, he's always hilarious. But it also kind of makes you want to cry. Because this is the kind of thing we all want to hear. We all want to hear someone uh, describe us and, and proclaim their love for us apart from our performance, apart from how we stand out or how impressive we are. We want that more than anything, but we're also resistant to it. We don't believe it. We can't believe it. I know I've had experiences where Sarah and other close friends have tried to encourage me like this, and I've quickly dismissed it the way that Roy does. And certainly there's a lot going on we could talk about with this dynamic, but much of it comes from the cultural idea we have about identity, that we have to create it for ourselves, that you and I come into the world as a blank slate and it's up to us to determine who we are and, and what we're going to be about. And whatever it is from professional soccer player to parent extraordinaire to preacher to person with the best politics, this identity is the way we earn and receive the love and validation we need. But as Kelly Cabick says in this chapter that we're looking at today, part of accepting the limits that we have as finite creatures is rejecting this idea. That you and I have to create an identity for ourselves and instead accepting the true identity that we've been given by God. And this true identity is what the Apostle Paul is is talking about here at the end of 2 Corinthians 5. And so we're going to look at it together and see how we can do this, how we can find rest and joy in this true identity that God wants to give us. And so we're going to look at this and we're going to think about uh, the origin of our identity the center of our identity, and then the direction of our identity. So the origin, the center, and the direction. First, the origin. So now we're dropping into this letter. When you study the Bible, it's always helpful to know something about where you are in the bigger story and what's going on. And so let me give you just a bit of context before we go any deeper. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people he's familiar with. This is the second lengthy letter we have in the New Testament to this group, along with First Corinthians and one of the things he's he's dealing with and has had to deal with are these false apostles that have come into this congregation and told them to reject Paul, to turn against him. And here in 2 Corinthians, he's thankful that most of the congregation has rejected these false apostles, but he's still concerned about him, so a lot of about them. So a lot of what he's doing is he's defending his ministry and his position as a true apostle. Of Jesus as opposed to these false ones. And, and so this passage is a part of this bigger argument he's making. So the identity type of stuff he's talking about it, most acutely in this passage is applied to him specifically, but it's something we can apply more broadly to all believers. But before we look at the identity itself, we need to think about where it comes from, the origin of it. And, and we see it in verse 18 in this phrase that we see there at the beginning. There's so much amazing stuff we're going to come back to, but let's focus on this for a few minutes. Paul says, here's all this great identity stuff, but where does it come from? It comes from God. He says, all this is from God. As our creator and as our redeemer, God gives it to us. And why is that so important? Well, because I mentioned earlier, this is not at all what our culture and what our own hearts tell us. They tell us all this is from us that we don't need someone outside of us to tell us who we are and what we're about, but we have to come up with it. And it's on you and me to figure out who we are to find our true, authentic self. And then we've got to go live out of that, whatever that is and whatever that looks like. But there's so many problems with this. For one, to Kelly Capick's point in his chapter, creatures, we were never meant to do this. How can a creature who's finite, who's limited, define reality for themselves, much less anybody else for that matter. And he says one of the ways he tries to point this out to his students at Covenant College is by, which is kind of weird, but by telling them to look at their belly button. Because here's what your belly button tells you. It tells you that you owe your entire existence to other people, right? Specifically your parents. So it tells you you're, you're not actually as independent as you think you are. Right? Because how can, you, how can you really be that self-made when your entire existence is because of other people, whose entire existence is because of other people, and on and on and on, and ultimately, all because of God. And then Alan Noble, another writer in his book, You Are Not Your Own, which covers a lot of these same topics we're, talk, topics we're talking about in this series, but more from an angle of cultural analysis, he explains really well what happens when you and I try to live this way. And so he says to be human is to have an identity. We need one, but it's difficult to create and then to maintain, especially as we move in and out of different seasons of life where we, we change, our circumstances change. And so you can think again about Roy Kent. So he was very sure of himself when he was in the prime of his career, when he was in his prime physically, when he was this great soccer player. Like that's who he was. But when those things started to change and diminish over time, he wasn't so sure anymore. And we talk about these seasons we face as an identity crisis. Something about us or our life changes and we're left trying to figure out who we are. But this isn't the the only problem Noble lays out. Because he says coming up with an identity isn't all there is to it. Because then once you have it, you have to perform it. Because we need somebody to validate our our identity and tell us we're okay. And this creates this, this dynamic called expressive Individualism, which sounds really empowering and great, but in reality causes all kinds of problems. And here's the way he diagnoses it in his book. It's kind of a long quote, but it's, it's so good. And it's on the front of your bulletin if you want to follow with it. But he says this He says, When your identity requires public recognition and affirmation, you can never really stop expressing yourself. No person is significant enough to permanently ground your identity with their gaze of approval. Although we sometimes allow ourselves to think so, particularly when we are young, insecure, and infatuated, we can easily imagine that if he or she would only look at us approvingly, then we'd feel secure as a person. Later in life, we imagine a career or artistic achievement as the definitive grounding of our identity, but it is never enough. And the terrifying thing is that everyone in society is doing the exact same thing. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention, and no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. He asks, how can we cope with such fierce competition? That's devastating. And the answer to his question is, of course, we can't. Right? And that's why we're so exhausted. That's why we're always performing why we can't stop competing even with our closest friends. That's why we're always building our brand because we need an identity. We need a purpose and we need to be approved of and affirmed, but it doesn't work when we have to do it, when we have to make it happen. Paul says, all this is, is from God. He says, we've got the origin all wrong as the limited fallen creatures we are. God doesn't want us to come up with this on our own, but he wants to give it to us. So then what is the identity he wants to give us? Let's look at the center of it, and we find it in verse 17. So again, verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, there it is. That's the identity God wants to give us, to be in Christ or to be in him. And this is Paul's favorite description of a believer. He actually never uses the phrase Christian, but in his letters, he uses this phrase or some other version of it 164 times. And this is, this is the language of union, which makes it a lot different from the other kinds of identities we try to create. And again, Alan Noble is helpful. He, he uses the illustration of water and glasses of water to help us think about this. And he says that often we think of our identity uh, of ourself, we think of ourself being like water and these different identities being like glasses of water or glasses that we can pour ourselves into. And so um, we can pour ourselves into the work glass or the dating or significant other glass or the kids and parenting glass, and we can ride those things out as long as they're working for us. But once they stop, then we gotta find another glass to pour ourselves into. And he says we can even do this when we, we put our identity in Christ, right? We say that, we say, I need to stop putting my identity so much in work and I need to put my identity in Christ. But when we say that, a lot of times it can still primarily be about what we do. Like here's this new lifestyle I'm going to adopt. Here's this new image I'm going to try to create for myself. It's still about us performing. But the way Paul talks about being in Christ here is so much different. Because it's not about you and I putting ourselves into him. It's about God putting us into him. It's about God bringing us into union with him, into real communion with him, relationship with him when we trust him by faith and Jesus talks about it using the example of, of branches being connected to a vine. And I was looking at our Christmas tree this morning, thinking about it. Like the branches are connected to the trunk, to the core. And that's what gives them, that's what makes them who they are. That's what gives them life and vitality. And so this isn't liquid, it, it's solid. It's not an image, it, it's real. And, and as we see in this passage, it means all kinds of things about who we are. And Paul shows us three things here that are true about us specifically when we're in Christ. And so going in the order we find them first, he says it means that we're remade. We're remade. Look at verse 17 again. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this doesn't mean that things that are unique about you go away, like your gender, your ethnicity, your personality, your, your story, your background. It's not like those things disappear. Dane Ortland says what this means is when you become in Christ, it's like you're swept up into Eden 2.0. Like you literally become part of a new cosmic age, the one that started when Jesus rose from the dead and will come in full when he comes again. And so it's actually like you becoming more of who you really are more of who you're created to be, you're remade, you're new. And second, he says it means we're reconciled. Look at verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And God's word is clear. On our own, you and I are not Friends of God. Our sin leads us away from him. It leads us into conflict with him. But Paul says in and through Christ, we're reconciled. We're taken from enemy to friend, from betrayer to beloved. So he says, being in Christ means we're remade, we're reconciled. And finally, it means we're righteous. Verse 21, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only do we go from enemy to friend, we go from sinner to saint. And of course, we we still sin. We still struggle with it on a daily basis. But before God, when we're in Christ, we, you are righteous, perfect, holy, spotless, blameless. That's how he sees you. That's how he relates to you. All these things and so much more. As he says elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 3, that in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in him. And that's true whether you feel like it or not. If you're here today, you're in Christ. However you feel about yourself, however you feel as I'm saying these things, this is objectively true about you. And how is this all possible? Well, because of the one we're in. Because of the vine, the trunk that we're connected to, See, we can be made new because Jesus died. We can be made a friend of God because Jesus became an enemy for us. We can become the righteousness of God because Jesus became sin. On the cross, Jesus took on all the punishment and curse our sins deserve so that we can have every spiritual blessing he deserves in him. See, in spite of all of our sin and all of our mess, even though we spend so much time and energy running around trying to create these identities for ourselves apart from him because God is gracious and because he loves us so much. He's done everything necessary in and through Jesus to give us a true identity we can stand on, one that gives us everything we need, everything we could ever ask for in Christ. So, this means in Christ, God does for us exactly what Phoebe tries to do for her Uncle Roy. So, He looks at us and He doesn't evaluate us like we evaluate ourselves. He doesn't evaluate us based on how well we're standing out at work, how much we're achieving, how much we're where we stand in relation to our peers, whatever it is for us. But He looks at us and He says, This is my son. And I love you. This is my daughter. And I love you. And unlike Phoebe, who's six and can can be easily dismissed, this is the God of the universe. The person whose evaluation matters more than anything, the one who can give us the loving gaze Alan Noble says we're all longing for. And so let me ask you, whose gaze are you looking for? Whose gaze are you looking for? For me, most of my life growing up, it was, it was my dad or my coaches, either on the sideline or up in the stands. It's not that anymore, but it's often the other pastors I work with, the, the elders, leaders, staff here, you guys, Sarah, my friends. Whose gaze are you looking for? Who are you performing for? Who are you trying to? to impress, do you know you don't have to keep doing that? Do you know you can can let go? Because this is how your father in heaven sees you and you don't have to perform for him. You have his ultimate approval and love in Christ. And guys, this has the power to change everything. And that's the last thing I wanna think about. We've talked about the origin, the center of our identity. Let's finish by talking about the direction of our identity. Where this leads us when we realize we don't have to be self-made. When we can repent of that and, and receive this identity God wants to give us. What does that do? Where does that lead us? Well, it leads us into our true calling and purpose. It leads us out of obsessing over ourselves into what God is doing In the world. And and notice here how Paul talks about the role God gives us in this passage. Again, verse 18, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal Through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God wants to lead you and I out of the exhaustion of self-focus into the freedom of self-giving. As he does all this for us, as he gives us this new identity, he wants to invite us into what we were made for, to be his ambassadors in the world. And I, I love the progression here of how it works. And it makes me think about what happens with rooster in the new Top Gun movie that came out this summer, the character that inspired so many great mustaches uh, here at Hope and, and beyond. Uh, but Rooster's clearly a talented pilot. He's, he's been invited into this select group to train for this mission. But whether it's the trauma from losing his dad as, at an early age or, or whatever it is, he's kind of a shell of himself. So he's got all this talent, but, but he, he's sort of a shell of himself. And Maverick recognizes this. And he can tell, like he's always overthinking and all this is holding him back. He's not out there doing what he's capable of, what he was made to do. And so he tells him this thing throughout the movie. He says, Rooster, don't think, just do. Don't think, just do. And as you and I receive this kind of love and validation from God, I think it can free us up in a similar way to stop thinking and just do. As the gospel grounds our life, as we receive the loving gaze of our father, we can go and do what he made us to do. And of course, that doesn't mean we've all got to become pastors or or missionaries or professional Christians. It, It just means we all get in the game. Wherever we are, whoever we're with, and whatever particular calling God's given us with whatever particular set of gifts and personality style we have, we just go play. And we do it together. We do it as a family. And in this world we live in, especially in a town like this, I've been thinking about it. I don't don't think you can underestimate how powerful it could be for for a big group of us like this to to get off the treadmill, to stop competing, to to stop shouting our own names so that everyone knows we exist, and instead to show up where God has us as a faithful presence. And humbly talking about another name. The true name. Someone who can give them what they really need. Can give us what we really need. And this is, this is the invitation for you, for us this morning. We, we lit the advent candle of joy. One of the things Jesus brought and brings into the world is joy. This is a pathway to experience it. To give up trying to prove yourself. By creating your own identity. To show that you're worthy. But look to the one who is. Let him tell you who you are. And as you receive that, stop thinking and just go do. How could we not? After all, as Paul says in verse 21, for our sake, he loves us so much, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we, you, me, we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For the good news of the gospel, and particularly this passage and this amazing truth that this is the way you see us, that we you see us so differently than the way we see ourselves. Would you I, I asked this morning, you'd open help us just to see that just a little bit more and and believe it so that we would be changed, so that we would be awakened to this this great and grand calling we have, um, even in our our ordinary lives, to be your ambassadors. Um, Lord, I get excited thinking about what that could look like for me and for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.